0: Welcome to episode 15 of The Critical Social Worker. My name is Christian A. Stetler, and I am a professor in the Social Work Department at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. And this morning, I'm broadcasting live from Southeast Alaska, just outside of the capital city, Juneau, in Auk Bay. Uh, and I'm blessed this morning, uh, here with the presence of my intrepid student co-host for the week, Kim Norman. Kim, she's down there in California. How's it down there in sunny California?
1: It's it's warm, but the weather a little bipolar. It was raining, thunder, and lightning, but it's gone back to that heat. How's the weather there, Nakh Bay?
0: Yeah, yeah, it's not good. Mother Nature is not is not happy right now, I don't think. Um, the I usually give a, we- a weather update on the podcast each episode, and uh, like you said, it was bipolar here. It was spring, and then it was winter, and then it was spring, and then it's winter, and now I don't know what it is. it is. It's almost June, but it's like... 40 degrees and constant rain with no sun on the forecast. And I think, uh, I, think I was telling you yesterday, Kim, my uh, brother, from my older brother from Maui, uh, the Hawaiian Islands is coming here tomorrow. And, uh, you know, they get like 365 days of sun a year. So I don't know what he's going to think right. stepping out in here to southeast Alaska. But hopefully we get a little, a little sun peeking through. All right. And we're joined uh, by Teresa Simmons. She'll be here with us in just a minute. Um, Teresa is a licensed clinical social worker based in New York City. She graduated with honors from Fordham University in New York City and has been in the field for over a decade working in various settings, providing therapeutic services to the vulnerable and underserved. Her passion is guiding people of color on their healing journey. She provides a safe, culturally affirming and nurturing space to explore, unpack, and reframe the distresses that come up as you move toward healing and wellness. She likes to approach therapy as a partnership with the clients. Believing that a positive rapport with the therapist helps better address the heavy topics that come up because they are in it together. She seeks to have clients across the the African diaspora feel liberated from traumas past and present so that they can find wellness and joy in their lives and relationship. Yeah, well, we got a great episode planned this morning. Uh, We got some uh, great and important dialogue and storytelling, and I can't wait to get down to it. Uh, But as always, there's just a couple of things we want to cover first. Kim? Um, the clinical the clino, clinical,
1: social work is supported by the social department at the University of Fairbanks. However, we want to make it clear that any opinion expressed on the podcast, whether it's by host, guests, or listening listeners calling in, do not necessarily reflect the value of the social work department, College of Liberal Arts, the University of Alaska, Fairbanks, or its affiliates. The opinion and ideas shared belongs to the speaker alone.
0: Yeah, thanks, Kevin. Right, That's important. Um, we can be opinionated folks uh, with lots of experience, ideas, uh, like I said, opinions. And so if you don't like something that one of us says, I advise you that you should take it up with the individual and address it during the podcast if you can. Um, there's a chat box as well as the opportunity to call in later. Or you can send me an email uh, if uh, anything comes up, you have any concerns or questions about things that are said, and you can reach me at castetler at alaska.edu. That's C A S T E T T L E R at alaska.edu. Uh, so, yeah, our opinions are our own and they don't represent anybody else or any other organization. So, with that being said, Kim, you mind sharing our mission statement?
1: The Critical, the critical Social Work podcast unfolds unique stories and diverse perspectives to foster critical dialogue empathy and understanding for all listeners though storytelling grounded in social work value we aim to change our change ourselves and the world one story at a time
0: thanks kim and uh you know one of the underlying themes of that mission statement is obviously the idea of telling stories well, at The Critical Social Worker, we believe that each individual is multi-layered with unique life experiences. And we want to help unfold some of these layers through stories that we can learn from and grow from, stories that help build critical consciousness. And I'm uh, going to give a quick shout out to the uh, UAF Social Work Department. Uh, you know where I work. Um, one of the things about us is that we are the, uh, one of the top rated online BSW, Bachelor's in Social Work programs. We offer extremely affordable t- tuition. It's, I think it's under $1,000 a class. Uh, I'm not going to do it right now, but go ahead and compare them with the likes of you know, USC's online program. Another cool part about it is that you get in-state tuition no matter where you're at. If you're doing the online uh, program, uh, you get in-state tuition for all of the online classes. So it's very, very affordable. You can do it from anywhere. There's a cool focus on Alaska and uh, indigenous ways of thinking, um, indigenous methods, things like that. And uh, the professors, uh, I've been involved in several different academic departments at different universities. And by far, the UAF uh, Department of Social Work offers the most care and attention, uh, healing, uh, opportunities for healing, opportunities for connection. Um, So if you want attention, you want a cheap, affordable program that you can do from anywhere, then uh, look us up at UAF Social Work. And you can find us, just Google UAF Social Work or find us on Facebook. Search for UAF Social Work. And uh, what about you? If you're listening in, do you have a story to tell? Are you interested in coming on the show as a guest to tell your story, to share your stories? Well, if you are, hit me up or reach out to me somehow. Uh, Again, my email is castetler at alaska.edu. And uh, if you enjoy The Critical Social Worker, one thing that you can do is uh, to support us is you can follow us right here on call-in. Follow the episode so you get updates call in, participate on the show. Uh, But also one of the key things that would be helpful is uh, folks would go to Spotify and Apple podcasts and leave a review for us. Um, Yeah, that would be the most help. If you you enjoyed the podcast, that's what you can do to help. And all right, I think that uh, it's time that we get this conscious party started for real. Hey, yo, everyone gather round. It's story time brought to you by the University of Alaska Fairbanks Department of Social Work and The Conscious Party Productions You are listening to The Critical Social Worker, a revolutionary storytelling podcast.
2: A Conscious Party.
0: Revolutionizing our minds,
2: elevating our consciousness,
0: changing our worlds. Your story, my story, our story. <laughs> All right, all right. Well, welcome to The Critical Social Worker, a revolutionary storytelling podcast. This is officially episode 15, In Pursuit of Healing, a conversation with Teresa Simmons on therapy and liberation. And normally, this is the part of the show where I open up with a story. But, you know, one of the more important things that I've learned over the years, especially the last you know, decade or so, something that I believe in is the idea of sharing power. Um, Despite coming from a troubled background myself and experiencing many troubles throughout the course of my life thus thus far, I find myself in the present in a very unique situation. I'm a white guy, a professor, I live in a big house by the sea, I have a beautiful family. And, uh, you know, if you ask me, especially looking backwards to where where I was before, that's a pretty good place to be in, if you know what I'm saying, if you know what I mean. And specifically, the professor part comes with some extra power involved. Uh, You know, as a teacher, I design my classes. I don't have a lot of oversight that way. Um, And uh, one of the things that I utilize is uh, several different techniques and methods in order to try to share power with some of my students, or with all of my students, I should say. And another way I I share power is here on the podcast, hence why you almost always see me here joined by a student co-host or student co-hosts. And while the podcast comes with a bit of power, too, you know, I got the opportunity to set the tone through my through the way that I open the stories, through the way I ask the questions, the dialogue. And, uh, you know, when I was contemplating the story that I wanted to tell, deliberating and reasoning, you know, this morning I always leave it to the morning of to see how I feel. Uh, you know, I really realized that I wanted Teresa to be able to set the tone uh, for this podcast. I think that's the right path for us to go down. And so Teresa, first of all, I just want to say thank you for being here. Thank you for, you know, blessing us with your time, your wisdom, your stories, your experience. So I appreciate you being here. Um,
2: Thank you for having me
0: Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a pleasure. I'm really looking forward to, to hearing what you have to say. Um, I thought that or I was wondering, I guess, if you might have a story that you could share, you know, something that epitomizes or is a reflection of you know your journey as a, as a clinical therapist or as a social worker, even as a human being. Um, I just thought I could give you the I, I thought that you should have the opportunity to uh, set the tone and uh, get us started with the story and that'll push us forward so that we can continue with the dialogue on the right note.
2: Awesome, awesome. Uh, So just a quick correction. I'm Teresa Timmons, not Simmons, but but thank you. Um, So I think the story that I think I wanted to share today kind of helped me figure out that I wanted to go into private practice um, and work with BIPOC clients, um, and I worked in a hospital in New York City for a really long time, and I worked in their psychiatric emergency room, and I had a situation with a client. She was of Jamaican descent, and her boyfriend had cheated on her, and she came into the psych ER because she was suicidal and very upset and she was a nurse she was a professional woman like but she was having a really tough time um and so i wasn't the person that did her initial evaluation but she was kept overnight uh for safety i came in the next day i re i did the reevaluation and we connected she was calmer she was she felt better um she was able to plan for safety i spoke with her family who spoke really highly of her and just was like, she's struggling, you know, Um, and I referred her for therapy. She ultimately made a complaint against the social worker that did the initial evaluation. Um, She felt like the person didn't see her and didn't hear her and didn't even believe that she was a nurse and a professional person and all of these things. Um, But she also made a point to tell in this, uh, complaint that she wanted to give special recognition to me because I did see her. I saw her in her fullness. I recognized that being loud or, uh, intense in speaking wasn't her being unwell. It was literally just her expression of the moment. Um, and so in that moment, I realized what kind of impact I could make on people who looked like me, because for her to feel in this place, which is scary enough, um, a psychiatric emergency room can be pretty scary because it ranges from the very, very sick to the people that are having just a moment in time. And here you are in this moment not feeling seen, not feeling heard, and then someone else comes in and and can see you and understand you and um, really get a sense of who you are and see you in your fullness, which made her feel better. Um, And that made me realize that I wanted to focus my helping power and my healing power on people who looked like me and maybe feel misunderstood in these therapeutic spaces.
0: Yeah, like I'll you know, you say um folks that look like you, but I think also important is maybe folks that feel like you. Um you know, sharing yeah. feelings, sharing experiences. Um Yeah, so let I also I want to circle back to this in a little bit later. Um But thank you for the story and I was wondering if if we can circle back and talk about your journey into social work. What made you want to get into the field in the first why why would you want to be a therapist in the first place?
2: Um <laughs> that's actually a funny story. So I I was in college and I was on track to go to med school and it just wasn't for me. It wasn't the relationship that I wanted to have with people. Um, and I kept thinking back, like, well, what do I really want to do? What am I good at? Um, and I thought back to this experience that I had with – this experience that I had with um, – This woman, uh, I was probably 12 years old and I was in Las Vegas (laughs) as a 12 year old when it wasn't fun for 12 year olds to be in Las Vegas. Um, It was actually for my sister's post wedding vacation. And I really didn't have a lot to do. Everybody was adults and I was the only kid. And I was just hanging around, like trying not to get caught on the (laughs) casino floor. And I went in the bathroom and there was this woman and she was sitting off to the side. She was like selling, she was a person that like sells cigarettes and ordered drinks or whatever. And she was crying and I sat next to her and she was crying and I asked her why she was crying and we got into this really deep dialogue. Here she was an adult getting into this very deep dialogue with this very nosy child um, about her child being home at uh, sick. And we had this conversation, probably 30, 40 minutes. And after the conversation, she was like, this feels so weird, but I feel better. I feel better now. And I thought back to that moment and I was like, that's the relationship I want to have with people. I want to take the journey with them. I want to see you when you start off and I want you to end up in a place where you feel better, you function better, you exist better. And so that's what drove me into social work.
0: Yeah. Um, I feel like, you know, you talk a lot about, you know, even in your bio, you know, you talk about the importance of building rapport, of creating, you know, maybe relationships. Um, One of the, I think one of the main problems in social work, and maybe this is most typically on individuals levels, but, you know, we try to bring people to where we're at or where we think they should be at. And it's a huge problem when you're talking about like interracial or inter- intercultural things. You know, I used to work at a, I used to supervise a treatment center in in Salt Lake City, Utah, and we had, we didn't have Utah kids. We had black kids from back east. We had uh, native indigenous kids from South Dakota and Hawaii and Alaska. And uh, Utah is a pretty homogenous place, you know. Like, uh, you know, typically people are going to be white and LDS. Not everyone, but typically. Um, we also had a lot of Polynesians working there, but, you know, I a huge problem there was that you know you'd have a kid that was from a completely different environment completely different cultural background completely different experiences and the folks there would have good intentions i felt like but they'd try to bring these kids to where that where they were at i mean excuse me where they thought that the kids should be at and it totally didn't make sense if you talked to the kids it didn't make sense to them at all it was often just brought on confusion and whatnot and so you know when you say you went and sat down next to this to this individual in the bathroom um, and listen to their story. One thing that we don't don't get in this culture is the ability to tell our stories or to share what's going on with this. You know, we're kind of expected to go from one place to the next. Uh, you know, without you know, and just just pulling our bootstraps up and doing it. And so I was wondering if you could reflect a little bit about on the importance of of building rapport, just as you did by just sitting down with the individual and, and listening to them, right? But also, in order to build rapport, you know, as a so, especially as a social worker, we've got to be able to meet the person where they're at. And, you know, take them at their worth, at their their value, if that makes sense, instead of trying to apply our own, which could, in like the situations I was mentioning, could be very different.
2: Yeah. Um, I think for me, especially now that I'm uh, in private practice, the most important thing is uh, me showing up authentically and also letting my clients show up authentically. Um, I think when, especially when they hear like, well, there's things that you're going to need to do in between the session. They're like homework. And I'm like, (laughs) it's not homework. Um, it's just practicing the skills. I'm like, we meet for an hour or 45 minutes every week or every other week. What do you think happens in between that time? You just put it on pause and you come back in the same place. Um, but one of the funniest things that I hear more often, uh, with newer clients is like, they come back to the session and they're like, I didn't do the homework. <laughs> I'm like, okay, that's fine. I'm like, you know, this is about planting seeds. You don't have to be ready today to do the things that we're talking about that you need to do to get to that next level. You could just hear it today. You could just take it in. And so reassuring people of that lets them put down their guard, lets them feel more safe, emotionally safe, to be able to share the things that may be a little more tough, that may be a little more intense, um, and also to open up to try the things, even if they don't feel like they worked for them. Um, so I think that just being able to let people know that it's okay to be who and where you are in your life.
0: Yeah, and one of the things you know, circling back all the way back to that first story that you told, you said that the, uh, the the individual that you were were working with, that they felt that the the previous person that they saw that they they weren't heard or they that they didn't hear them. Um, so we have a uh, one of the parts of the program we have here at the at U University of Alaska Fairbanks Social Work is uh, we have a rural cohort program where we bring mostly not exclusively but mostly Alaskan Native folks from you know Alaska's huge, so from all the different villages and towns across the state, and we. We would we bring them in for a week at the beginning of the semester and at the end of the semester, and have like Zoom meetings or phone meetings in between. And uh, when we facilitate the the, the in person intensive classes, you know, we utilize talking stories, storytelling. We always have elders in the classroom, um, things like that. But one of the biggest reflections that I get from the Alaska Native students, from especially from the rural parts of Alaska, is that they say that you know when they went to school to regular school that they felt like that the teacher didn't see them, they didn't hear them, and they weren't allowed, like they had to come, you know, almost like the idea of double consciousness, they had to come in there and they had to be somebody else and they had to put on a perform, they had to be performative in order to get the attention that they needed. Um, And so I was wondering if you could just speak more more on that.
2: Um, I think that, especially in the space of mental health, people feel like they have to come and be something else or they have to come and, and be more well than they are um, or pretend like what's happening isn't affecting them as much as it is um, because oftentimes it's like, well, I don't want, I don't want to be labeled. I don't want um, people to think I'm crazy. Um, I don't want people to know my business. I don't want these things, right? So there's all of these, uh, spaces and places around shame and around, uh, secrecy and, and it makes them hard. It makes it hard for them to open up. It makes them hard for them to just get the help that they need a lot of times. Um, and so being able to help them let down their guard, being able to give them a space to let down their guard and just be, um, as I was saying that, I just thought of like most clients when they curse for the first time in a session, they're like, oh, can I curse here? And I'm like, (laughs) what if I say it too? Will that make you feel better? (laughs) Like now we both said it Um, because they think that they can't express themselves in the way that they normally would or using slang. "Uh, Do you understand that? Or do you get that? Should I say that? Um, But just being able to reassure people that how they show up is perfectly okay, um, I think is probably the most important thing that I've learned along my journey in social work.
0: Yeah, you know, you hear, um, oftentimes you hear the discussion of in the, say, for example, in the military, that folks are afraid to receive uh, mental health services or therapy, because, you know, the stigma along with it, as well as being labeled as something, which is much more, I guess, you know, they're in in a much more serious predicament than some people. But I was wondering as you were as you were talking I was reflecting to myself I was wondering about you know people of color do you think that there's an extra because of all of the challenges and stressors do you think that there's you know there's an extra fear there as well
2: Oh absolutely absolutely um you know I hear stories of people saying you know I've tried therapy before and I felt like I was being um interrogated rather than you know, having a space to kind of share their story or um, to express their self in a in a safe way. Um, You know, I've heard people say, did you did you give me a diagnosis? Is it bad? And I'm like, well, what's bad? You know, um, or even just even when they talk about their own feelings, I cried and it was so weak of me or I felt sad or I couldn't get up and I couldn't do all these tasks that I needed to do today. And I felt so unaccomplished, so unproductive, um, so useless. Um, So there's all of these things around, if I can't be at uh, what my perceived optimal level is, what that means for how people see me out in the world, how I'm viewed, how I'm perceived um, and how I'm received. By people, So I think I hear that a lot with people of color just because the expectation is to be strong. The expectation is to march on even when it's tough, you know, just get through it, do the next task. And, you know, part of what I do is letting them know that you don't have to get to the next task. You can take that pause. You can be sad. You can cry. I love to tell people, you could cry anywhere. They're like, no, you can't. I'm like, well, who's going to stop you? Who's going to walk up to you and be like, hey, cut that out? Stop that crying? I'm like, we have been trained to believe that that's what happens because maybe that's our family experience, or maybe that's our cultural experience, or maybe that's our societal experience, but that's not the truth, and so giving people that permission to just not be okay um I think is so huge, especially for people of color.
0: yeah um well you and you've you've touched on this just a little bit already, but I was wondering mm-hmm. if we can dig a little deeper. Why is it so important for you to work with uh, people of color and, you know, just to give folks that might not know that the, the acronym BIPOC, BIPOC is black indigenous people of color. Why is it so important for you?
2: Um, because I feel like there are so many spaces for our white counterparts to feel safe, um, and to feel connected. And a lot of times um, that's not, unfortunately, that's not our experience a lot of time in in therapeutic spaces. And so having that space where we can connect on not just the book, uh, you know, therapeutic processes and modalities, but just on the level of, you know, my experience is similar to your experience. Um, The struggles that you have, I can give you insight from multiple perspectives, from the perspective of what you see in the book versus my own lived experience. And so that, I think that that gives people such a, such a sigh of relief internally that they can just be, um, and they can heal in a way that's very full.
0: Yeah. You know, just thinking about it, I guess it's not, it's actually kind of facetious to laugh about it because it's actually a serious matter. But, you know, white folks tend to get offended about things like this, you know, when, uh, say, black people want, I, I read about it all the time in the news or hear other folks talk about it here and there, people get in an uproar about, you know, say, like, here's another example, like, uh, I saw something that a bunch of white people were really upset about. Uh, I don't remember what university it was, but they had a, their own separate uh, black or African American graduation um, separate right. than them. And so you often hear like, you know, like deeply, almost like deeply, deeply wounded. And I can understand it somewhat, you know, you want to feel like you're included and involved and you don't want to be shut out. But you know, why, why do say black folks, why do you need your own space in certain situations?
2: Mm. Um, so I, I've, I've been to therapy and, and, you know, a therapist that's never been to therapy, I tell them, please go. Um, but I've been to therapy a couple of times throughout my life and they never looked like me until my current therapist. My current therapist is black and the experience that I have now versus my experience in the past, um, certain, certain values just don't align and, as much as we love to be professional and we, we say that we're coming in as a blank slate and we don't have our own biases that show up in the session. Absolutely. They do the way that we see life, the way that we value uh, connection, the way that we value interactions is in the session with us. And so sometimes even just the way that I am socialized versus my white counterpart or a white therapist may be socialized is different. And so when, certain things are mentioned in session. I get it. Um, you know, especially something like microaggressions and that's something that is very nuanced to non, especially non-black people. Um, and that even includes sometimes people of color because the black experience is a unique experience. Um, because the nuances of certain things, because, um, microaggressions are one of those things that can be nuanced and it's sometimes misunderstood. Um, Not that other people of color don't experience them, but the types can be different for black people and the types can be different for people of color, but we all experience them. And when we do, sometimes it's hard to explain. Sometimes it's like you say it and it seems like to someone else is like, that seems innocent enough. Why are you upset about it? And it's like, no, it's it's the feeling that I got after it was said, or the experience of it that made me feel this way. And to have someone across from you then tell you that maybe that wasn't what occurred can shut everything down. And to have someone that says, I get it, <laughs> And, and actually be able to relay it back to you or uh, provide feedback on it in a way that's meaningful, changes everything.
0: Yeah, I appreciate you sharing that with us. Um, you know, again, going back to like the 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 white person feeling wounded by not being included. I think, you know, if I could give just a quick little reflection on my own experience, and I can't encapsulate that completely here, but... You know, I like to look at it like uh, I like to look at things versus instead of like racist. I like to look at racist ideas, you know, pull out the actual ideas. okay? And so when I was growing up, I hung hung out around with a lot of black kids. I was the white guy, the white kid that hung that was known as that. Right. But when I look back to that time, those were when the most racist ideas were going through my head once I learned about them. now I didn't have they weren't mean spirited. They weren't like I didn't mean to be bad, but the, the jokes that I told the certain thing, the certain ways that I looked at different things and so I guess my my point here is like you know if any white people that are listening and they want to be reflective is that you know you can have racist ideas and still be a generally really nice person that has good intentions but you still have the responsibility to look at yourself and to examine the ideas you have um you know and look at them for authenticity for you know and then uh, the other part to that would be instead of when the next time that somebody may, I shouldn't say that, I should rephrase that. So the next time you feel offended when say you're not included in something, then reflect on it and then listen, spend some time listening or, you know, something along those lines. So, sorry, I just wanted to cut out to that. I think that that's an important uh, conversation and an important, um, yeah, it's an important conversation that we could spend a long, a long time on. Um, but reflecting and listening. Um, I was wondering, Teresa, do you have any, I know you sh- you've shared a couple stories already, but do you have any more stories that you know, um, or you know, particular experiences or cases that have Im- impacted your approach to therapy? You know, obviously confidentiality. Uh, yes, yes. <laughs>
2: um, yeah, so uh, one of the most important things about my therapeutic practice is the liberatory focus. Um, and so what that means is being able to tap into those past traumas that people don't even know influence, not just them, but generations before them and, and creates those behaviors and patterns. And, you know, uh, it's become the buzzword to say generational patterns and gen- breaking generational curses. But some of that is solely linked to, our experience in blackness or our experience across the African diaspora or our experience as an indigenous person or whatever it is, um, that experience shapes everything and it could, you know, it goes beyond just our own experience. And so being able to release us from that, being able to release us from, um, especially with my black clients that internalized anti-blackness. And so um, I love to see when my clients are starting to get that insight and really like take note of when they're doing it on their own. Um, and so the story I have is one of my clients, um, she was talking about her hair. Um, and someone made a comment about her hair, it's in braids, and she was, it was down. Um because it was like a Friday, it was um like a dress down day and it was a Zoom day. And so she's the uh one of her colleagues made a comment and was like, Oh, why don't you ever wear your hair down at work? It looks nice. And her automatic response was, because it's not professional. And when she repeated it back in session, she was like she immediately like gasped and held her mouth and was like <gasps> That's it. That's the internalized anti-blackness. I'm like, yeah, that's it. That's it right there. Um, because the other person didn't have to say it. You presented the idea that it was unprofessional to wear your hair in braids and to wear it down. Um, and so working on that ability to show up authentically and not see ourselves in the ways that have been brought to us as, as bad. Right. Um, you know, natural hair and uh, skin tone and, you know, all of these things that are internalized within us. And we just say it or do it without even thinking about it. And when you are able to start to take that journey of liberation, it starts to fall away and you become more empowered in your existence, you become more empowered in how you show up in the world, and you're able to show up in a way that is unapologetic. Um, and so I think that that's, that's probably one of my best stories of thinking about like, how the liberatory focus shows up uh, in my sessions with my clients.
0: Yeah, what do you mean when you say libertary focus?
2: So the liberatory focus is, like I said, that releasing those past traumas, right? Those, pa- those past traumas that may be our own, may not be our own, um, and being able to decipher um, what's really our view versus what's been societally imposed, what's been culturally imposed, what's been racially imposed, um, and how to experience life from a more empowered standpoint, because a lot of times we uh, as people of color don't feel empowered in a lot of spaces. There's a lot of I can't do this because of this. Um, I'm not allowed to because of this dot dot dot. Right. Um, and so when you are starting to take that liberatory focus and kind of I like to call it breaking those emotional and, and mental chains that we have within us, we start to see the world differently we show up stronger and more empowered. So that's what that liberatory focus is. And also um, for me, it's also using uh, theories and, and, um, and practices that may not be part of the traditional therapeutic scope, right? What we're taught in social work school, what we're taught in uh, in uh, psychology classes, you know, there are so many black psychologists that if you asked someone they would be like, who's that, who's that, right? Um, So bringing some of those things into session as well um, as part of the therapeutic process. Um, I also take that holistic approach and that holistic approach is part of the liberatory focus because um, when we think about indigenous cultures, ancient cultures, African cultures, all of these things, we think of how the mind body and spirit work together right most of these people uh when you think of these people of color they all have that piece of how those things work in harmony and how do you heal that sick mind sick body sick soul right and so taking that holistic approach is also part of that liberatory focus
0: yeah, how do you think, you know, looking at it on a larger, like on a uh, society at large in the United States, New York, whatever we want to look at, you know, how do you think that con- the way that we are, and we've talked about this a little bit already, but how do you think the way that we're required to operate in this world, how do you think, you know, it contributes to that feeling of, of you know, kind of disconnection that you were mentioning?
2: Um. I think it's embedded in everything that we do, everything that we experience, um, you know, even as we talk about, you know, indigenous people, the fact that it was just so normalized to use the word Indian, when we know that that's not who they are, right? Um, And it was just so normalized. It was so embedded in our culture. It was so embedded in society. It was just the norm. And so for people to stand up and say, that's not, that's not right. That's not appropriate. Like these are indigenous people because they're the people that have always been here. And to take up that name and carry it, right? Or even for the many changes uh, of how to describe a black person, right? Um, And the idea of how, how everything is minimized when it comes to the ideas and needs of BIPOC people. Um, you know, it always feels like uh, we're asking for too much, right? Um, and so, with those things already embedded in society, it's, it's hard to feel connected. You know, it, it always feels like a fight, it always feels like an uphill battle it always feels like you're an outlier. Even when you are integrated into all of the neighborhoods, the societies, the schools, the whatever, it feels like you are a visitor in your own home. Um, and so so I think that that's how it shows up as that disconnection um, between um, people of color and our white counterparts a lot of times. It's the embedded experience.
0: Yeah, and, you know, when we look at things, I should say, when I look at things historically, you know, I'm always learning more and more. Um, I, the the more and more I learn, the more and more I become shocked about the things that have transpired historically in the United States of America and the things, I mean, there's so many different places that you could go from, you know, from, you know, calling the colonization of the indigenous folks here to slavery to Jim Crow. Um there's, there's many different places you could go. But so when I try to try to empathize and I try to put myself and I try to, I mean not put myself, but when I try to imagine what that might feel like or what what in the present day, and I imagine that there's plenty of, indig- and this is kind of an assumption on my part, some assumptions on my part, but I imagine that indigenous folks, black folks, that in some ways there must be something inside waiting to scream because of all these things that transpired, and some before our lifetime, you know what I mean, before before uh, we were here. But you know, um, those of us that are familiar with historical trauma or with trauma in general, we know how that persists and how it how it passes down intergenerationally. And so, I what I guess what I'm trying to say is, I imagine that there's plenty of people of color, especially Black people and Indigenous folks in America, that have some pain inside them, some trauma inside them, and they don't know where it comes from because it's never really been addressed. It's not really talked about, uh, at least effectively in our society. And so I just imagine it's this way of feeling and oftentimes that's probably reinforced through society, even in 2023. Um, And so, like, how do you you approach that?
2: Um, Part of it is just being real. You know, giving people space to just be like, this experience is trash, right? This experience in the United States is trash, (laughs) you know? Um, Sometimes it's okay just to let them have that moment to say that. Um, But also coming from the perspective of giving insight. Um, One of the things that um, I think surprises people a lot, a lot of um, clients, is when I talk about how the relationship between black men and women, uh, the romantic relationship and how it has been uh, systematically created for us not to be together since slavery. Right. And so I, I explained to them like, well it's been systematically in place that we are not supposed to be together. If it was outwardly shown that you loved your husband or wife on a plantation, they were sold, killed, broken sexually or, you know, separated in some way. Um, And then, okay, now we're free. And then it was school that separated us. Um, Black women were able to go to university before black men. Um, And so then we were able to get better jobs, we were able to get more money. Um, And then so then it was the idea of like, well, I don't need you because they were literally closing the kind of uh, skill based jobs with the enforcing of people going to university. And then we have social services come into place. And it's like, well, if you have your husband in the house, then you make too much. And now you can't get these services that you desperately need because you're under the poverty level, even with this husband you, you guys are both working, you both are under the poverty level, you need these services, but they tell you, well, if you have a husband in the house, then we can't give you these services. So ultimately, um, a lot of women were pushing their husbands out of the home or not marrying them legally um, so that they could get the services that they needed. And so all of these things were systematically keeping and separating black women and men. And so now there's this built up resentment between them. This silent resentment, as I like to call it, the backpack of silent resentment. It's like, um, you know, sometimes black men receive black women as we're overly independent and we don't need them. And so, but this is what black women were told. Well, you don't need that man. You can do it all on your own. And and then black women sometimes see black men as not being able to provide or step up. And so it, it continues to permeate the relationship, obviously black love still happens, but it's, it just becomes harder and things that you have to work through um, where it's not just like you meet and you bump into each other and you drop your books and you pick them up and you fall in love. Um, And so stuff like that, uh, bringing it to the session always blows people's minds. They're like, I never thought of it that way. I've never, uh, you know, connected those dots. And so, Being able to connect those dots and and oftentimes for my black women, especially, they're like, so nothing's wrong with me. And so giving people that space to understand that nothing's wrong with them, that some of these things are so far beyond them that they don't even know where it comes from is okay. And being able to work through that um, is why they show up. Um, yeah, so I think that that's probably how um, that kind of gives that space to my clients.
0: Yeah, and, you know, I think, I think you also told a larger story about American society. You know, you often, in, polit- in politics, you know, over the decades, you uh, there's often the discussion, criticism um, of the black family. Um, and uh, what I hear you saying... Is that, so for all the societies telling, criticizing the black family for this, this, and this, while actually reinforcing these things and almost ensuring that they'll, they'll come to those things will take place, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, I think it's great that, you know, you're helping people, you're helping folks connect the dots, because there's so many of us out there, like I said, that, you know, feel or think certain things and they, we don't really know why. Um, mm-hmm. and so it's, it's, it's really cool that you're connecting those dots. Um, you know, we talked about talking a lot about trauma, you know, and, and focusing on past traumas, uh, you know, but you also talk about, uh, fostering wellness and joy for your clients. So how do you find that balance?
2: Yeah. Um, so I do a lot of work around self-care and giving people the permission to take care of themselves. Um, you know, we are part of the capitalistic society and, you know, we got to work <laughs> to make money and we got to make money to buy the things that we need. And, and so there's this cycle of, I just have to do, 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 do. Um, but I like to give my clients space and time to just find moments of joy. And so how I describe it to my clients is like, I, I tell them, especially when you're depressed or when you're overwhelmed, think of it like, the nighttime. Even in the nighttime, you see stars and the moon. They're still sources of light in the darkness. And so, my job and my part in their journey is to help them find the little light spots, even in the darkness. And so, that may mean tapping into um, activities that give them pure joy. And so, I tell them if you're, you know, starting out with that, you want to tap into things that Made you feel joy as a kid. And that may feel silly in the moment. Um, uh, the example I use, I'm like, you know, most kids really wanted to jump in puddles when it rained. Um, and depending on your parents, that was not okay. But if you got even just a little bit of it and you jumped in it just a tad, you felt so good about it. Or just throwing yourself um, in the snow and making a snow angel, um, those things gave pure joy. Um, Playing a game, a board game with your friends and winning made you feel pure joy. So tapping into things like that, dancing, um, you know, running outside with abandon, you know, without abandon, you know, with abandon, just like running, not like with a goal, not with a destination, but just running. All of those things tap into pure joy. And so when you're trying to practice and figure out what brings you pure joy, tapping into some of those childlike activities kind of jumpstart you. And then you can start to think of, well, what else? What else do I like? What else do I enjoy? Um, one of the first questions I ask people in, in, in their initial session is, what do you enjoy in your life? And a lot of people don't know. And so that's a great starting point for me. And that's why that's one of the most important questions I ask, because that's part of the exploration, figuring out what do you enjoy? And once you start to build that up, you're able to tap into it more, Um, you know, and creating wellness plans is very important and a very important part of my practice with clients. Um, You know, I tell them if you have one coping skill, that's not enough because that may work today, but it may not work tomorrow. And so you have to build, um, you know, your toolbox full of things that you could tap into. Well, when I feel anxious, I could do this, 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 and this. Um, and when I feel sad, I could do this, 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 and this. When I feel angry, I could do this. When I feel overwhelmed, I could do this, these things. So having access uh, to things and understanding that it doesn't have to be elaborate. It doesn't have to be expensive. It doesn't have to be, you know, well, I can't get out and get my nails done every week. Okay, that's fine. But what else can you do to take care of yourself? You know, maybe take an extra long shower. Maybe, you know, when you come in the house, take an extra 30 minutes and be like, hey, everybody, this is my 30 minutes. I'm going to go and, you know, go to my room and I'm going to lay down. I'm going to watch my favorite show. I'm going to listen to music, whatever it is. And you train the people around you to respect that, right? That boundary of that 30 minutes. And and so that's the other part, creating boundaries with yourself and with other people so that you can take your wellness seriously and so that other people know that you're taking your wellness seriously.
0: Yeah, I appreciate that. Well, I have... Um... I have one more question for you and then I'm going to turn it over to Kim and then I'll have another one last follow-up question at the end. Um, But uh, you know, I want to invoke the critical social worker and I just want to leave it this, I don't want to focus this question too much. I want to leave it open for you. You know, social work has many problems, which which is many of them we can talk about historically in the present, whatever. Uh, But where do you think, you know, where's an area that social work needs to look itself in the mirror and uh, you know, critically break it down and make some changes?
2: Access. Access, 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 access. Um, You know, a lot of times, you know, we – when I went to social work school, um, I was – I, I shocked everyone by saying that I wanted to work in psych. I, I was like, you know what? I really want to work in the psychiatric emergency room. The sicker, the better. I want I want them at their worst. and And that wasn't necessarily what my other black and brown colleagues in the classroom said, because there was this push for us to go to social services like, you know, housing and, and, and welfare and, you know, uh, all these case managerial, but I think that it's so important to encourage black and brown social workers to be therapists. Um, if their passion is clinical, cultivate that, cultivate that those clinical skills because it is so important for there to be more options. Um, for there to be more options in therapy period uh you know whether it's people of color whether it's more men whether it's um you know a variety of ages just access encouraging people and honing those skills and not just kind of pigeonholing people based on the school based on the area based on the people in the classroom but just really tapping into Where are these people's strings and how do I cultivate those?
0: Yeah, I just wanted to reflect a little bit. I'll turn it over to Kim. But, you know, here to bring the context back to Alaska a little bit, I'm in southeast Mm -hmm. Alaska. You know, Alaska is huge. So there's a lot of different areas with different things going on. Uh, But for the most part, it's pretty similar. Well, here in southeast Alaska, the model that they have in order to bring to you know, it's also highly traumatized population indigenous population here um well you know instead of you know finding ways to really and i'm not saying nobody does this or no agency does this but instead of like finding a way to 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 cultivate therapists here and support the therapists and support which would in turn support the people of the communities here the model is to offer people from outside of the state big bonuses to come up here and work for two years and then they Bounce out after because they don't want to. They don't want to be here. It's hard to, and it's it's hard, you know. It's 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 hard weather here. It's hard working with you know uh, being an isolated community and folk and and working with folks with trauma all day long. Um, so same thing here, you know. I wish that we could find a way in Alaska to cultivate more of the people, of the you know, to to cultivate it locally. I guess is what I'm trying to say, um, so that. The people that are helping each other versus paying somebody $20,000 to come and do it, you know, a $20,000 check to come work out here for two years. Um, I'm sure that we can all imagine the problems that that come from that. Um, All right, Kim, I want to turn it over to you. It's all, the mic is all yours. Hi, Teresa.
1: Um, My question is, how important is it to find the correct therapist for healing process?
2: it's the most important part. It literally is the most important part um, because when you feel connected to your therapist, when you feel safe with your therapist, when you feel like this person is not just taking care of uh, me in the sense of you know working with me, but taking care in the sense of just literally caring for me as a person not just as the client that's paying them but as a person it it opens up so many doors it makes people feel like um you know the things that they're afraid to say they could say them the the feelings that they were afraid to experience they're able to experience um and and it just feels very fluid Um, I think that that's what makes the relationship so important, finding the right therapist for you. And also just like, um, therapeutically, when you're thinking about what modalities, um, people use, um, if you're coming about family issues and this person has no concept of family issues and how to deal with them, um, that's probably not the therapist for you, um, You know, so also being cognizant of that, like, what am I coming for? And what is this person's expertise that may be able to help with that?
1: So if you live in um, a place where it's prominently white only Mm -hmm. and you being a person of color and want to find a therapist, what would be what would you recommend?
2: So, um. One, uh, a lot of social workers are, are licensed in multiple states. Um, and strategic strategic social workers will get licensed in states where they know there are, uh, you know, low uh, BIPOC populations so that they could be providers in those spaces where they know there may not be a lot of uh, providers. Um, but if you, you know, really want to find a therapist who... Um, is a person of color or queer or LGBTQAI or whatever is your need, um, there are websites that you could look at um, that'll help guide you. Um, Inclusive Therapist is one of those websites. Um, They focus on all uh, types of people who may feel marginalized. So they deal with LGBTQAI. They deal with people who are... um, ability limited, um, and they deal with people of color. So that's one of the ones where if you want uh, an array of things, that's kind of a spot that you can find a lot of those uh, different things. Um, If you're looking for someone who is of color, there is therapy for black girls. There's um, melanin and mental health. There is therapy for black men. There is... I want to say it's Sansa. That's for South Asian um, clients who are looking for someone who looks like them. Um, But if you just type in in Google, like uh, how to find a therapist of color, how to find a um, queer therapist, how to find, and they will give you the list of those directories. And I think that it's so helpful. For people to have access to those spaces where they could, you know, look at these pictures, read these bios, read these profiles and connect with people and, you know, do consultations and figure out what works best for them. Thank you. So Uh also
1: the bio that you talk about, the essential of nutrients, nutrition. Can you explain how vital that is to the well-being of your mental and physical health well-being?
2: yeah um so nutrition plays a big part in especially when we're talking about depression and anxiety um, you know i I recently did a blog on my website about it where what to eat and what to avoid eating when you're feeling depressed because you know we we want to reach for those cakes and cookies and things <laughs> because they feel comforting in the moment and and it is In the moment, right? Um, Simple carbs, they give you that boost of energy. They give you that mood boost and you're like, yes, I feel better. But then you crash and you want more of it and you want more of it. And then before you know it, you're feeling sad because you ate, you know, a whole cake by yourself. Um, (laughs) And so what we're putting into our body is so important. So being able to be knowledgeable of what to eat when you're feeling depressed, that can shorten the episode versus lengthen the episode with some of the other things that we may be putting our body, putting into our bodies or making the episodes more frequent, um, or even just making the symptoms worse. And the funny thing is our, a lot of our serotonin is produced in our gut. Mm -hmm. So if, if we are feeding ourselves with things that are killing our serotonin or throwing off our, our gut health, then we are ultimately, you know, gonna feel irritable we're gonna have poor sleep we're gonna maybe be depressed anxious and all of these things are happening because our gut is out of balance and so that's why um nutrition is such a huge part of mental health
1: so what are your thoughts on um drug and substance abuse and the community where it's prominently black and indigenous communities
2: um a lot of times the treatment doesn't fit them. Um, a lot of times, especially, you know, we talk about all of the services that jobs offer, like employee assistance programs and, um, you know, sub- discrete substance abuse services while you still stay at work. Those things are not offered to black and indigenous people of color. Um, They're often fired first. They're often suspended first. And so, being able to find providers that are culturally affirming, culturally competent, and understand that the nuance of substance use can feel and, and the experience can be different is so helpful. Um, and, and sometimes realizing that, you know, um, inpatient isn't for everybody or medication treatment isn't for everybody and just realizing that we have to take a look at the whole person And that includes their ethnic identity, racial identity, cultural identity as part of it.
1: So, have you ever had experience where a client came into your office, they were white, but their children were of color?
2: Um... Not in my current practice, but in the clinic setting, yes. Um, And it, a lot of times it's a lot of teaching um, because how society sees their children and how they see their children may be different. Um, Sometimes they may see their children as white children. Um, And society sees them as black children or Latino children, Asian children, however, you know, whatever is the other uh, part of their biracial identity. And so realizing that and being able to sit with that and being able to um, be sensitive, but also aware how to deal with the things that may come up for them is very important. So what would
1: you say the healing process start? Would, would you say it started when they first walked in the door? Maybe it could take a while.
2: I think it takes a while because they have to reconcile with the fact that how, how they see their children or their experience of their children is different. And unfortunately, especially when we talk about the black experience, nobody wants it. Nobody wants it. And so they don't want it for their children. And so they're like, well, I don't want my kid to suffer. I, I don't, you know, I didn't do anything wrong, right? And so there's a lot of stuff that they have to kind of reconcile with first to be able to appropriately be there for their children who have this uh, biracial identity where a lot of times they feel like they don't fit in either as they start to get older and socialize.
1: So would you say that the
2: children suffer more? Um, I think that, you know, everybody has their, their part of the experience that's very difficult for them. Um, I think for the children, it's, it's that invisibility, um, because, you know, I'm not, you know, Asian enough, or I'm not black enough, or I'm not white enough, or I'm not, you know, Latino enough, whatever it is, um they're they're they never feel like they're you know one thing or another but people want them to be one thing or another so i think that that's the biggest struggle that they experience um people trying to tell them they well you have to be this or that and their experience is that they're both and so that's hard
1: so you you're saying that They can grow up still with that struggle and needing a healing process because they were raised, not know which way to be identified.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Or just growing in their own identity. Um, It's hard for them. All right. Thank you. You're uh, welcome, Kim. Thank you.
0: I have uh, Thanks for that, Kim. I have a question that for both of you or either of you can answer. And I just kind of thought of this while why you all were talking about it. So in, in substance abuse treatment, typically like the most common uh, form of treatment is or method of treatment is the 12-step programs, mm-hmm. um, despite there being a lot of lack of evidence in certain ways. But one of the key things in there is, is the sense of powerlessness and you're powerless. And so uh, I went to to rehab a long time ago, like 20 years ago. And the, the 12 Steps program, the 12 Steps really helped me at that time. They did. They helped me look at the world a different way, look at myself a different way, um, you know, go through some of that different uh, experiences and aspects of my life. But as I've moved forward in life, one of the things that I realized about myself is that I actually have a lot of power. And I don't mean like in the, as I was talking about earlier, like power as a professor. I mean, I have the power to manifest a to some degree, whatever I want, um, you know? And I think that that's taken place through what's happened with my family and, and my job and things like that. And back then, you know, I would have thought maybe somebody like me would never have opportunity to do those things, you know, I'm, you know, I'm sitting here powerless. And I was wondering when you apply that to black folks, for example, uh, who or, or indigenous folks, you know, um, where there's been a, an imbalance of power, you know, and probably a lot of people feeling powerless in some, some situations, some circumstances. So, what do you think about that? Like that, you know, the first application in in, in a twelve step program where um, somebody may be taken a part of not by their choice, but because of the, the treatment program they're in. You know, can you would you would you both mind, mind or either of you reflecting on that? You know, that's that idea of powerlessness, and does, do you think that contributes to it? Do you think we need to look at it a different way, or maybe how we how we can, you know, maybe utilize the twelve steps but shift our perspective in some way? Just curious about that.
1: Well, for me, when I worked the 12 steps, it was more you did feel powerless, but once you got once you became in tune with what was going on with you inside and you bought it to surface, I think it was easier for me
0: to even work the steps. Do you have any thoughts, Teresa?
2: Um, I think I think there probably is. I would say that it probably shows up a little bit more uh, with black and indigenous men because power is so important um, to the male experience, feeling empowered. Um, so I, I would guess that it probably has more of the impact there. Um, and just being able to, to kind of counterbalance that with something I think might be helpful. And that's why I was talking about like, Having one size fits all substance abuse treatment isn't always helpful um, because the sources, it, you know, the source can be different, the treatment can be different, and, and just being able to take that into account is helpful.
0: Yeah, thank you. And Kim, did you, when you were participating in 12 Steps in Recovery and whatnot, did you feel like, uh, you know, that you were seen and that you were heard in those spaces?
1: not all not all the time because it was more of something i had to do because i was court ordered but once you find once you get out of the court and then you see that this would benefit you if you would work it because you needed it not because the courts wanted you to i think it worked better for me
0: right on well i hope we can talk about that throughout the semester um uh, more kim as we go through the class But all right, I wanted to uh, open it up to the audience. Uh, We have a few people here. Does anybody have any questions? One thing we can clarify, uh, you can uh, do that in the chat box, or you can uh, call in like a radio show, just queue up. Uh, One of the things, uh, Deb, one of my uh, former students, she asked, um, does liberatory mean liberation? You want to just add a little more context on that?
2: Um, Yeah, absolutely. Liberatory is the focus. Liberation is the feeling that you and the experience that you get.
0: right thank you does uh so if you have a question now is the time um to queue up um one thing that i can i can ask a question real quick while we wait to see if anybody does is uh um so i was thinking like uh you've been a social worker for a long time you've been in the field for a long time um and i think what makes a good part of what makes becoming a good social worker or and I'm sure a good therapist would be the idea of like a finding yourself finding ourselves first uh, or Mm -hmm. maybe finding ourselves through that journey and maybe it's a lifetime journey but I was wondering if you might be able to provide some advice for our social work students um, that are just beginning this journey you know maybe they have an LCSW clinical social work you know on the horizon they're looking that that's what that's what they're thinking about becoming a clinical therapist in the future well, how might they embrace that journey? How might they find themselves along the way and achieve those goals that they're setting out for?
2: You know, um, as I said earlier in the show, you know, that idea of of having therapy as a therapist is so important um, because we get to tease out who we really are um, and what we really want out of the experience. Um, and so, Finding how you want to show up in the world of social work is so important um, because it's it's like, okay, yeah. Um, I initially just, I wanted to work in the psyche and I did it for uh, three years. And then I was like, ah, I don't want to do this anymore. It's really intense. It weighs heavily on you. Um, and then... I went to a more still intensive psych, but it was intensive psych, not in the hospital, but these are the people that really can't, um, they really can't, um, survive in the clinic setting. They don't strive there. And so, um, and so I stayed there for another seven years. Yeah. I stayed there for another seven years and Even in that, I was like, all right, well, this isn't this isn't where I see myself either anymore. Um, And so being able to really check in with yourself throughout your career, throughout the experience and saying this works, this doesn't work. This isn't working anymore. This is how this isn't how I see myself anymore um, is very helpful to to just being in tune with who you're growing into um, may not be who you were when you started out and just being able to reconcile with that and move forward and take steps in that direction where you want to go rather than where you feel you should go or you needed to go.
0: All right. We have a a comment from Heather. She says, wow, what a great podcast. I appreciate the background noise, the birds. You know, I was thinking that earlier too. I forgot to mention it, but that's, that's really refreshing, (laughs) you know, usually birds, birds here, but it's cold and they went away for some reason. And, before this, I was in Hawaii, you know where there was always birds chirping, but it looks beautiful. It looks like a beautiful day in New York City.
2: It is. It's almost 80 degrees here in New York, so it's a good day.
0: Yeah, I'm jealous. Envious, I guess I should say. I'm envious. <laughs> um, Heather says, thank you. For, uh, she also says, thank you for having this conversation. I've learned so much more about being mindful and respecting other people's experience. This says with respect to, uh, to BIPOC. Um, I thought... I just had a text message that somebody was trying to get a question in, but they were struggling with uh, the connection. So maybe we won't get it. Um, if it pops through by the time we finish, we'll go to them. Um, but Teresa, I, I just wanted to say thank you. Uh, I feel like you've been a very special guest. I feel like you've added so much insight, wisdom, knowledge, um, you know, your experiences, your storytelling added a lot. Um, it's been a pleasure to share this space with you. And I just wanted to say thank you from my heart to yours. I have nothing but respect for you. And I just wanted to, Open it up. Do you see if you have any last words?
2: Um, I just wanted to say thank you for having me on here. This was such a great experience. Um, just being able to share with people, you know that that their experience is special and unique and deserve care is so important. So I really thank you for giving me that space to share that with people today. Um, and uh, you know. I also lived in Alaska for a very short time as a small kid, so I get the dreary weather. Um, so I just wanted to throw that in there. But I really want to thank you for having me on today and having this experience.
0: Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Well, we, we just got the caller in. Um, so before I turn it over to Kim for some last words, uh, we're going to take a call from Alicia. Alicia, you're alive. Can you hear us?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. I tell people, try things out. Um, you know, I tell people, you know... When we're trying to figure out who we are and where we want to show up and how we want to show up, try things out. What feels good? What feels, you know, what feels comforting to you? Um, and and tapping into those things um, and also remembering to be insightful, be reflective with yourself. You know, am I trying this because I think that that's what I should do? Am I trying this because I think that, you know, this is somehow going to get me one place or another? Or am I doing this because it genuinely is giving me what I need to nourish myself um, and to, to make me feel good in some sort of way, um, or to help me grow, or to help me um, feel more empowered within myself? Um, so I think that that's the advice that I would give anybody.
0: I don't know if Alicia's still there. All right, we lost her. Um, but yeah, thank you for the question, Alicia. Thank you for the answer, Teresa. Um, yeah, we got kind of off, 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 uh, off our trajectory here. Um, back to Kim. Kim, I want to say thank you so much for joining me on the episode, for being a co-host. I thought you did a great job. It's a pleasure getting to know you over this past week and, uh, our semester, she's in the summer semester with me. So we're just getting started getting to know each other, but I really appreciate you, you know, demonstrating the bravery that it takes, you know, for a student to come on here and for doing it, being the first one in this class. I just want to say thank you for you know setting a good precedent for everybody else um and like i said you did a great job it's been a pleasure to have you with us
1: thank you for having me teresa i'd like to thank you because you really gave opened my eyes to things that i need to look more into instead of just whatever someone presents me i need to take it a little further and look into other things and not just because it's there i can if I could make it better, I just need to look a little harder to to make it happen.
2: No, I'm so glad that, was, that this was helpful for you, Kim. Um, you're a great co-host. Thank you so much for having me today. Thank you.
0: Yeah, again, it's been a pleasure. And I also want to thank all the listeners that tuned in and those that are going to uh, be listening to this later on. Um, that's it for this episode. You can find episodes right here on the call-in website or app. Or later on, usually if we don't have any technical difficulties, they'll be available via Apple and Spotify podcast uh, the evening after they're recorded. We broadcast live every Saturday morning, 10 a.m. Alaska time. I think that's uh, 11 a.m. on the West Coast. That's, uh, what is it, 2 p.m. on the, on the p.m. East Coast. 8 a.m. in Hawaii until daylight savings happens. Then it uh, goes back to, to 9, I guess, right? Anyways. Um, Yeah, next week I'll be here at 10 a.m. I'll have an old friend of mine, Natalia, who actually went to school at the University of Hawaii at Manoa with. uh, We got our um, MSWs together. She's also my first going to be my first reoccurring guest, my first uh, repeat guest, I should say. She came on as a panel um, previously, but she's going to come on. She's an LCSW working in Honolulu. She'll be here to talk about harm reduction with substance abuse, among other topics. Uh yeah Kim
1: well I'd like to thank the university and the um, listeners but the critical social work is a collaborative effort between the University of Alaska Department of Social Work and the an A-Conscious Party Production this episode was hosted by Christian and Kim thanks Kim welcome
0: been a Conscious Party production brought to you by the University of Alaska Fairbanks Department of Social Work. You've been listening to The Critical Social Worker, a revolutionary storytelling podcast. Your story, my